You are listening to Zen and the Art of Triathlon. Well, hey there, all you triathlon studs and studettes. This is Coach Brett with another great episode of Zen and the Art of Triathlon, the podcast where we go long on endurance and learn a lot about ourselves along the way. All right, I am leaving the pool. It's Wednesday morning. Got in a nice swim. Talk about that in a second. Today's episode is going to be all about Garmin Unbound, formerly known as the Dirty Kanza. It has gotten a lot of bad press <laughs> due to due to due to how much mud there was. So what I'm going to do is the good and bad of Garmin. I've waited a little bit, waited for the reviews to start coming in, the videos to start coming in. For example, the video feed itself was atrocious. <laughs> and pros deserve better than that. We've learned that from pro Iron Man. But like I'll say again later in the show, it's just rude and ugly to criticize. You ought to give suggestions on how to make things better. So that's what we're going to do on this show. I also talk a little bit about how Kai and I have been battling back and forth over two different comms. It actually made me puke. <laughs> and mix in a little bit of triathlon news about, for example, the uh, tragedy that happened in Ironman Hamburg with somebody getting killed out on the bike course. But we can get to all that in just a minute. Let's cover the swim. I've been going big on the weekends for five-hour days, you know, back-to-back, Saturday and Sunday. And it's really hot here. So what that does is it dehydrates me. It would dehydrate you too. And then I struggle getting up and going on Monday morning and followers of the show know that I love to swim on Monday mornings. It's a great way to start the week. It's nice and easy. I swim pretty soft and chill and relaxed. And Monday, I just could not do it. I felt ill from the uh, dehydration and all that. So I'm working on trying to schedule that out a little bit better. It crossed my mind while I was swimming that I need to start working towards doing a self-supported Ironman probably this fall. I might do a self-supported half Ironman first to get back on track with that. That's what I always recommend is people do half Ironmans before Ironmans. So I should just take my own advice. But doing the swim today, Wednesday, I missed a swim on Monday and I haven't been mountain biking really lately. And Mountain biking is a full body workout. And I noticed when I started mountain biking that I didn't need to do as much upper body weight stuff because you're wrenching the bike around. Sometimes you got to carry the bike, push it up a hill. Depends on, you know, your local mountain biking course. So I'm swimming along going, man, why do my shoulders hurt? Oh, I missed a swim. All right. That's, I try to swim three times a week. I missed my Monday swim. So that doesn't help. And then I thought, yeah, but there's a little bit more. It's more than that. 
because I miss swims on rare occasion. It doesn't feel like that. Oh, what's different? It's like, oh, I've been gravel biking a lot and not mountain biking. And also I was looking at the weather. If you're a triathlete, cyclist, runner, outdoor pool swimmer, you're addicted to your weather feed. <laughs> I use weather underground. And I look at the 10 page index because it's going 10 day index because it's going to show the wind direction, temperature, highs, lows, humidity, everything all one big graph. It's freaking awesome. And I highly recommend that. I was like, man, it's going to be hot and it's going to be dry ish. It'll still be really humid, but no rain is what I mean for the next week through the weekend. And I thought, oh man, I should do some mountain biking, mix in some mountain biking. And also, it crossed my mind. I'm like, man, when I was doing full Ironman training, what worked? And I think what I was doing was a bike ride on Saturday, a long ride on Saturday, and then a long run on Sunday, or I think actually vice versa. Sunday, long biking, starting early in the morning, safer. People down here in the Bible Belt of Tixish are usually in church. Not everybody by any means, but it's just more people are in church and the roads are a lot safer. They're a lot quieter on Sunday morning. I call my long Sunday bike rides by myself or with just like one other person with all the nature and everything. I call that my own version of church. I love it. Get out there in nature, see everything. And yeah, what I should be doing is working, transitioning my schedule my training schedule from back-to-back big bike days and trying to find some running in because I'm not running enough. I need to run more. And I'm not getting in a long run. I'm doing short runs, but I was overcoming a running injury. So it's okay to do short runs. So an hour at a, at a pop three times a week is where I'm at. And really what I should be doing is two short runs and one long run at least to get in the volume of running. And that's what tends to work is a big bike day on one day and a big run day on the other. So maybe I'll do a long run on Saturday and then a long swim on Sunday. See, this this is the thought process when you go in (laughs) on coaching yourself. This is what it's like. You've got to analyze what's going on, how you feel, figure out what works. 99% of triathlon, of success in Ironman training is scheduling. The workouts, you don't go all that hard. You just need to do a lot of them. So then it becomes a scheduling war. And then on the, on, on the, uh, on the race day, it's a, it's a battle of who can eat the most on the bike, especially, and then into the run. Anyway, let's get started with the rest of the show, but let's do a little commercial break. If you would like endurance coaching from yours truly, I have a couple spots still open. I coach using the industry standard training peaks and it's really great. It's the best stuff. It's the stuff the Olympians use, the world's best use, Ironman champions use. It's fantastic. I give you workouts that match your ability and then you comment back how they're doing for you. And then we build from there. We tweak and build. And it's really great. We look at, we increment the volume ever so slightly week after week. 
with your feedback, I look to see what you need to work on, look at your weakness, build on that, and give you advice from 20 years of triathlon experience of how to fit it all in your schedule. All you have to do is reach out to me, texafornia at gmail.com, texafornia, T-E-X-A, fornia at gmail.com. Put coaching somewhere in the subject line or in the body of the email itself. I only charge $1.99 a month for full customized triathlon coaching one-on-one. Okay, enough of that. Let's get on with the rest of the show. All right, for this episode, we're going to do something really cool. We're going to do the best and worst of the biggest bike race in North America, the Unbound Gravel. And I was about to say the 200 miler, but there's all different lengths of this race. There's a 25, a 50, a 100, a 200. There's even a 350 mile race. And each is unique and amazing in its own way. And this has become the gravel world championships, even though there is a gravel world championship somewhere else, but nobody really cares about that. It's this one. This is the big event. And it also becomes sort of an expo of equipment, new changes in the industry, and also how to race, how not to race, how to hold an event, how not to hold an event. All kinds of things happen at this thing. It was very dramatic this year because they had a lot of rain and mud, which has made this very controversial, actually. And what I did is I took notes over the past few days as the video and commentary started rolling in. So I took everything from everybody's perspective, read up on forums, saw all kinds of stuff from all kinds of people. And it looks like the dust and the mud has settled enough to start drawing some conclusions here. And it's, it is really something else. It's quite a spectacle. I watched it sort of live. I went for a bike ride that morning. And then as the video started rolling in, it was like, oh my gosh. And we have, I have commentary just on the live coverage itself. And what, man, it was pretty bad, but it's also a lot of fun. And a, a lot of people had a really good time. So there's definitely some upsides to this race, some good along with the bad. Okay. Before we get into that though, we do have some triathlon news. Uh, there was a tragedy at Ironman Hamburg, Hamburg, where a motorcyclist that was supporting the race, actually it was a media motorcyclist, so I think there, there was the driver and then there was the person on the back possibly, you know, with a camera or something like that. And they were covering the pros and they hit another cyclist coming the other way and the motorcyclist got killed, which is actually a surprise uh, because the motorcyclist has a motorcycle under them and, you know, full head helmet. And to, and, and the cameraman got severely injured. And of course, the triathlete got severely injured. And there was a lot of commentary on that based on the fact it was, it was a narrow two way road with triathletes going both ways, which is kind of dangerous enough in my personal opinion, where you got to really watch out for that. And then there's motorcycles jammed in there. They said somewhere, and this is just what I've heard, 
like 12 motorcycles following the pros. And so one motorcycle got off to the side of the other motorcycles. And the motorcycles are like like parallel to the pros, which is enough of a problem with drafting. That shouldn't happen. But trying to get video footage of all that. And we're always – I'm going to talk later about there should be way more live coverage. You know, So this is the downside of too much live coverage is a motorcycle was passing the other motorcycles to move up. And it hit a triathlete head on. And the crazy thing is there's actual video footage that you can find online of it happening. And of course, there's a lot of criticism for why didn't they cancel the race? And there's both sides to that. Why did they acknowledge more about the race? Uh, having a tragic event, you know. So all around, not good. Jan Ferdino was in the race along with a lot of other top name pros. This is quite a big quite a big issue, quite a tragedy. And our hearts go out to all those involved in hoping that they make some changes on how they cover these races and make them safer. All right, on my own side, personal racing, you can go to Instagram, which is Zen Triathlon on Instagram and Twitter and see commentary and quite the storyline of Kai and I going back and forth trying to take comms from each other. <laughs> and there's two different ones. And for those who don't know, Kai is my 18-year-old son who's trying to go pro mountain biker. He already races Cat 1. And the kid is amazing. And I went for a long bike ride on Saturday morning. And when I got done... I noticed that on this Jeep trail that turns into a pasture road and then finishes with a steep uphill that takes like 11 minutes that um, I was actually within a minute of, of having the calm on this thing. And it's, it's long, you know, it's like, seriously, it's a nine to 10 to 11 minute. Well, it was a 10 minute and change uh, calm until Kai showed up. And then it was kind of embedded in, like this crazy gravel adventure ride where I rode my gravel bike through a mountain bike park, did a little bit of mountain biking even, and then rode this uh, this Jeep trail that turns into a pasture road on the way back. Anyway, so I'm looking later at, at this on Saturday afternoon, and it said, hey, you've got the third fastest time ever on this one Strava segment. And I thought, oh, cool. So I tell Kai. Kai gets really interested. We go and do the exact same ride again on Sunday. But these are three-hour rides. And I'm also mixing in one-hour runs before I ride. And it's hot here in Texas. So this is now Sunday. And it's towards the end of the ride. It's the last hour of the ride. And so you can just imagine how dehydrated I am. <laughs> I'm... I think I was, yeah, I was seven hours into eight hours of training and probably five pounds dehydrated over time. That seems to be what I lose over the weekend. And Kai and I are riding together now on Sunday doing the exact same route. And he wants to take this calm. And I could just tell, like, I, I was going to be in trouble. So he goes first, he disappears over the horizon into the woods. And then I said, um, now it's my turn, and I just realized I was gonna, I was gonna do do good just to freaking finish the thing without dying. And so I do the Strava 
live segment thing that you can show on your Garmin's and probably other bike computers too. And um, I was using my watch and I could see it on my watch. It's such a cool feature. You ought to Google it and check it out. You can see live how you're doing versus the calm or qualm if you're the queen. And then you can see live how you're doing versus yourself, your own personal best times. It's really neat. And it'll teach you how to pace yourself for this, which is just a, a great feature. So I realized just a few minutes in that I'm not going to beat the calm. I'm going to do well just to beat my own uh, personal time, which I tried. And I did, actually. I beat it. Like, I got the exact same time, but it's like a millisecond. So it says that it's my fastest time, but it reads the exact same time. And Kai was waiting for me at the finish line, and he came up to me, and he said, How'd it go? And I put up my hand, like, hold on, let's pause this conversation. And he said, you all right? And I kept my hand up and I sat there for a second, stood there for a second, did not want to get off the bike and then puked. (laughs) And then I puked again and then I puked again. So I puked three times. It was all liquid. And because what I'd been doing was fueling and drinking as if it was a, um, you know, like a long, easy workout ride, which means a lot more fuel a lot more water because you're always thinking about tomorrow and, and recovery. And I had just, you know, overdone myself with, (laughs) with the effort and the heat. So Kai, uh, Kai got me to puke and he beat the time by like a full minute almost. It's down into the nine minutes now. So he's very excited about this calm. Right. And then that was Sunday. And then on Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, I'm at work minding my own business. Kai's out on a bike ride. He's out of school. And I get all these alerts that my calm has been taken on a completely different section of road in a different part of town. And it said, oh no, or dethroned. (laughs) And also got a text message from Kai. Hey, check this out. And it was a shorter calm. It was a three, three to four minute. Yeah, I think it was like, like about a four minute calm on a section of gravel road. And I posted a picture of it on Instagram and it was really funny. I said, what the hell is this bullshit? <laughs> and then Kai's taunting me and I can't, the best thing to do is when you take a calm and then the other person can't do anything about it because they're at work or they're in school or something. It's really funny. And so... You can see that whole thread on Instagram and it's really funny. A whole bunch of people chimed in and then Kai told me that he wasn't even trying. And I was like, oh, okay, now this is totally on. If he wasn't even trying, then that means actually maybe I'll be able to take it back. And from my Iron Man and time trial background, I actually do know how to go really, really fast for short segments, especially if it's flatter. And I do hold a bunch of calms for crazy stuff, but mostly by using aerodynamics and good position and training for it and practice for it and everything. So, and also being ruthless with strategy. You learn that in uh, swimming uh, with uh, uh, racing and heats versus other people. There's all kinds of strategies and, and intimidation and tactics and timing that you can use that, uh, I could hold a whole podcast. It seems like I am, but I'm not on, on Strava, calm hunting is what they call it. 
tactics. You want the weather to be right and all this stuff. So I look and the weather's actually going to be right. It's going to be a tailwind-ish, sort of like a crosswind, not very much. But again, Kai took it without even trying. So I'm like, I got to take this one back. And he'd taken it by like 20 seconds or something. And the devious thing was he wanted to ride with me on Saturday morning and we went out riding. And so I said, oh, I'm going to go slow, you know, and what are you going to do? And he's like, oh, I'm going to, I got to do like whatever effort, heart rate, this and that. And the other. So he's going to do like an actual real bike ride. And I said, oh, I'm just going to recover and go slow because I was actually kind of tired and feeling kind of poopy. And I said, you just go on ahead. So we started at the same time. We stayed together for about 20, 30 minutes. And then he just go off. But what he didn't know was my plan. My secret plan was to go super easy so that when I hit that area of road, I could try to take the combat. And I did. I hit that next section of road. I avoided anything that was difficult on the way, any hills on the way, everything. I rode super easy. So it was almost like a two-hour warm-up is what I was aiming for. And then when I hit that section of road. I had that Strava live segment stuff set up specifically for that segment. And it told me that I was taking the calm and I had it by about 20 seconds while I'm riding. Now it's got two uphills in it and Kyle weighs a lot less than me. So that's where he can totally take it back. And the points where I pushed the hardest was on the uphills to make sure I didn't lose much time there. And on the downhills, I take it cause I weigh a lot more than him. So, uh, I ended up beating his calm by 20, 30 seconds or something. And I posted it all over Instagram. I got it back. (laughs) People love this stuff. And uh, so that's that. Okay. So the Strava, the Strava calm wars are on. I've got one that I always taunt him with. that I just know he'll never get because I went nuts trying to get this one calm one time. And then let's leave that segment behind. Let's move on to i just saw this morning that shimano is going to introduce another uh rear derailleur hanger patent oh my gosh after sram did their universal one that people can uh, stand on which don't do that by the way if you that universal derailleur hanger has no adjustability in it whatsoever it's so stiff it's got no adjustability in it whatsoever so if you actually do bend it or you bend your frame at all, then it'll never work right after that. So let the people on TV do that kind of thing. And that leads me to something else. I just posted on Instagram a link to an article that explains, do not sit on the top tube of your carbon fiber bike. Steel bike, aluminum bike, those are a little bit different. But if you've got carbon and in Kai's, in our case, we have magnesium bikes, which is super cool, but they have flattened ovalized top tubes. So that's, they said, especially that on carbon. You, one thing is you don't clamp it in a bike stand that is not made to take pressure, like a crushing pressure. And what happens is you won't notice anything. But if you take carbon that's thin enough, which the top tube in the middle is definitely thin because that's where they shave off a bunch of the weight. If you take that and squeeze it, well, it's layers of carbon, right? Well, the layers on the inside and the outside don't squeeze as much as each other, right? They have different varying rates of length that they need to cover when you squeeze it. The outside doesn't squeeze as much as as far as the inside. 
you can just imagine if you have like layers of paper past each other, the inside layers will squeeze a little bit further than the outside layers. Well, that'll rip apart the lamination of your carbon fiber layers. It'll separate them. And that's called delam, delamination. And if you get gaps in your carbon fiber from the separation from your, because you've applied pressure like that, one, it's not covered by manufacturer's warranty. And two, it will, that, that is the number one thing in carbon where you see failures is carbon delamination from gaps. And you create those gaps in that delamination if you sit on your top tube. And the reason I posted it is I'm watching these interviews with pros. And I warned Kai about this all the time when he sits on his top tube of his bike. I say, dude, do not do that. Don't sit on the top tube of your bike. Don't put your weight on, the, on your top tube like it's a seat. It is not a seat. It is not meant to take your weight. And that's where you'll have a failure if you continue to do that. And it's your frame. It's a very expensive thing to fix. And at the end of all the gravel, uh, unbound gravel racing, they have all these interviews with pros and they're all sitting on the top tubes of their bikes because they don't really know either. But the other thing is they get a new bike every year or less. Sometimes they get a new bike every big race. So they don't have to replace their frames. They never see the end result. But if you've got your frame for two, three years and you've been sitting on your top tube, then you're going to see some damage. Okay, let's wrap that up as as news and pro tips there and get on to the unbound best and worst i'm gonna try to run through this because we want to get a show out and get this information out there while unbound is still hot and everybody's mind okay so again this is going to be the best and worst and what i don't like to do is complain about things without offering a solution if something's bad you try to say hey this is a workaround right i do that at work. I learned this from my parents. They said, don't ever go to your boss or your teacher (laughs) with a problem and just complain. Then you just sound like a complainer. You say, Hey, I've got this problem and I've already found a solution A, B, and C. You pick the solution. And then your boss is like, wow, this is uh, not a problem maker. This is a solution maker. This is a person I want around. Get my pay raise. Okay. So that's the way you should go through life. When you see problems, I try to offer some solutions and that's what we're going to do here because it's a way more positive way to go through life. So for those that somehow don't know, Unbound is in the middle of Kansas, Emporia, Kansas. It's in the middle of nowhere, which is great, by the way, and it's become the unofficial world gravel championships and the race that is the, the major race is the 200 miler. And of course, it's not 200 miles, it's like 205, you know, whatever. They tend to do this at all the gravel races. But being that this is a gravel race that has been around for a while, this has more real... It used to be called Dirty Kansas, by the way. And they changed the name because there's an Indian tribe named, named the Kansas tribe. And, or, and they say Dirty and then Kansas is like insensitive, some people thought. So they just changed it. And that's why it's called... Uh, unbound now, but if historically it's called Dirty Kansas, just up until a few years ago. So again, the event within the event is the 200 miler. That's the one that people have decided is the crown jewel in all these, but it's not the longest one. There's a 350 mile one that they launch everybody off the day before. And that's actually kind of common in long gravel races and long Grand Fondos. 
is to have a super distance. It's called the XL at Unbound. But you should ask yourself, do you really want to do the 200? Because the 100, and we're seeing this in a lot of races, by the way, though. There's a lot of talk in the ultra off-road gravel adventure racing community about these distances are actually a little bit too long. Why, how did we settle on these monstrous, monstrous distances as the go-to distance? So what I recommend to do is look at the finishing times. I recommend to do that anyway for any race that you do is look at the finishing times and then adjust your training and racing plan accordingly as far as fueling, water, pacing, and all that. Don't look at the, don't look at the numbers per se. Zero in on the, train, on the finisher's time from last year, during good years, during bad years, you know, with, with weather. And then you'll have an idea of what race you should actually sign up for. So Unbound has a history of having nearly tragic mud if it rains enough before the race and it seems to rain enough before the races to cause this almost like every other year and why people keep signing up for this i don't know but because it was it's one of the older races and it's one of the bigger it has become one of the bigger races and there's something where like people like to sign up for the trauma that they're going to go through kind of like an iron man you know why would you do one of those well, it's the same sort of thing, maybe, except with mud in this area, it turns to peanut butter mud, which is when it starts to dry out, it jams into everything and will literally break your bike, ruin drive. A lot of people had to drop out of the race because of broken drivetrains, broken derailers, broken derailer hangers. Uh, I've read just read a story where a guy like threw his bike. He was just so mad after the 13th thing broke. And the mud, along with the grass that gets torn up, ends up uh, jamming into your frame and you can't even push your bike. You have to carry your bike and your bike's jammed with mud and it gets really heavy and then your shoes are covered like overshoes of like concrete mud. So it gets really, really terrible. And when I did Gravel Locos, I did a whole lot of research to make sure it wasn't gonna do that because I've got my bike stuck many times in mud, especially mountain biking in this peanut butter mud. And it is a miserable, miserable experience trying to uh, get this done. And what the big controversy this year is the race director supposedly, supposedly, I'm not claiming this as fact, but supposedly had the choice before the race to reroute the race course and avoid this horrible section of mud I'm about to tell you about and didn't. And there's a little bit in there, like, do they put people through the mud for the spectacle? And I get kind of on the side of like, this is abusive towards people. If you're just like wrecking their bikes and making them have a miserable existence because of you wanting to have the spectacle of the race. And it's the hardest gravel race and, and, and such like that. Well, a lot of people didn't sign up. They, they sign up for what a 200 mile or any distance gravel race is already hard enough and a little bit of mud to walk through and carry your bike that's type b fun you know a few hundred yards here a few hundred yards there that's you know whatever that's part of it but the race had 
three to five miles, miles of mud at like mile 10 or 15, like early on in the race. So imagine you spent all this money and all this time to train, to get there, to buy a bike, to keep up your bike, and then to get there and stay in a hotel and all that stuff. And then you get 10 something miles into a race and you're having to walk for three miles, not kidding, three miles was the minimum, minimum walking with a, and carrying your bike covered in mud. And then for a significant portion of people, your bike's broken and then they had to drop out. And then also the delays, they used up so much water at the first aid station, which is at mile 50, I guess I have it here somewhere, mile 42, that there was no water left for people to actually drink. And then a whole bunch of people had to drop out from dehydration. So a lot of people are saying, <laughs> I don't want to quote Trump, people are saying that the race was a complete disaster. On occasion, you'll hear somebody say, I thought it was fun because they got lucky. But the other thing is, is the race is so popular that there's an actual lottery to get in the race. So the race directors don't have to really worry about whether or not people had a good, a good time or not because there's still more people that are going to show up and do the race again anyway. And I view that personally, I view that as a little bit abusive towards the athletes. So if you own a, if, if you work for a company that underpays people because they know that there's still more people that will show up and take the job anyway, because it's like in a poorer community or a college town, then that's abusive towards the employees, right? So just because you got more people that'll show up and do it doesn't mean you should treat your people that way. And it's, again, if there was no choice, like say this is the Appalachian Trail or the um, the Pacific Crest, tra- uh, what's the other one? The Continental Divide Trail, which sometimes gets really muddy and messes up people's bikes and it's impassable at times. Dude, that's one thing. But there was apparently a choice that they could have rerouted. And then I heard somebody say, well, it was too late, you know, by then. And I call bullshit on that. The place where it got really muddy, there's two places, a place at the end too. Well, the place where it got really muddy that was breaking people's bikes and making people have to hike for miles, for miles, was a known spot. So if you are a race director, and I have been a race director many times for very small events when I put on my own events. I plan out the courses. I do all this stuff. And hey, I've done a self-supported Ironman where I had to cross a creek channel, carry my bike on my back through mud, through a construction zone. You know, like there's sometimes it's unavoidable, you know. But if you know a spot is going to be trouble, you plan and all, if, if, it, if the weather's going to turn bad and a spot's going to be trouble, you plan an alternative route around that. See, what they're saying is, oh, well, at the last minute, we didn't have the ability to, uh, it's, it's too hard to plan a, an alternate route, right? Because the route's already made. No, what you do is you plan both routes, right? For trouble spots, you plan an alternative alternate route and then on race day if it rains or the day before and the place is a mud pit you can just say okay alternate route boom done right it's better planning so do that next time people (laughs) okay anyway if this wasn't such a big race you would be facing lawsuits from people for their destroyed bikes people wanting damages paid 
for that. And also a huge drop in attendance from a poorly executed race with the water thing. What if somebody got hurt and uh, had to go, uh, people get hurt at these things all the time. You're signing a waiver, but unnecessarily, you know, when you could have just had better planning. So if you put on your own race, make sure that you do these things. All right. And just to show how bad this was, the DNF rate was 43% for the 200 miler. 43%. That is nuts. Absolutely nuts. You got almost half the people didn't finish. That's, that's like completely unacceptable for putting on a race. Unless the whole point of the race is it's a race where it's very likely that you won't finish. Like the Barclays or the Barclays, like the Barclay marathons where some years nobody finishes or like it's seal boot camp, you know, where some years nobody graduates, some years nobody finishes. Well, you know, there are those types of races, but that's not really what people sign up for. Okay. Beyond that, I did some research on the aid station situation. And this is something that shows the history of this race because, again, we got to go back to the history of the race, okay? I'm talking all this negative stuff that, like, you could have... I'm, I'm talking all this stuff about how it was miserable and, and they should have done better or whatever. But also, real gravel adventure racing kind of has this, like, built into their roots in a way. If it's an older race, dude, they are hardcore it is going to be difficult. And if you're coming from a racing background where you got an aid station every mile, like like uh, the run on a marathon or an Ironman marathon and, and an aid station every 10, 15 miles on the bike and it's, you know, it's road. So it's like the aid stations just as you only need like a water bottle or two. And then you keep cranking these things out. Uh-uh, dude, that's not what this race is like. This race is old school. The 350 miler, no aid stations, completely self-supported. You have to pack all your own food and you get food and water at gas stations along the way. Think about that, okay? And then the 200 miler, two aid stations, that's it. And if you've ever done off-road stuff and then seen it go like mud or sand, things get bad and a lot of hilly terrain, an aid station for 200 miles, an aid station at mile 42, and then another aid station at mile 124. Dude, you seriously have to turn your bike into a water truck. Now, what they do allow is you to have a race crew and show up at mile 79 and mile 67, I think. No, 167, sorry. So you end up, if you have a support crew, with four aid stations. The the other two aid stations I mentioned at the beginning, at mile 42 and 124, it's water only, not food. Just think about this. Like, this is really, really crazy and really hardcore. And then you start getting back into the, okay, well, maybe the three miles of hiking through mud is, uh, you know, it's not so much out of the out of the picture of this thing. But as newer gravel races come along and like I did gravel locos, for example, I don't know, there was like four aid stations, I think for 150 miles that were stocked, you know, and almost no mud to walk through. And then 
you know, there's different events. There's a lot of gravel events now that you could pick like different events and better events according to what you want to go through. All right. So then let's get to, oh, the other, the two other checkpoint aid stations at mile 79 and mile 167, you're allowed to have your, uh, you know, family, friends, whatever, come out and help you out. There's even like a service where you can pay. And if you're a member of that paid, whatever, they'll have food and water for you. Okay. Anyway, there's like a whole industry around this thing. I highly recommend that if you ever get in to do this race, bring somebody or bring some friends that are going to support you with these other aces. I would not do an, a 200-mile race without four aids. Dude, you got to stop, especially because it's gravel and it could be mud. You're out there forever. One of the slowest times was 21 hours. 21 hours. That is crazy. Uh, so uh, back to some more details. The first aid station with all this water, they ran out of water because everybody's hosing down their bikes to try to get the mud off. And it's just like once something goes wrong, you start having cascade, cascading effects of, of uh, going wrong. <laughs> it's just the, the Chernobyl of gravel races. So uh, then 100 milers didn't have uh, water um, because about like the second half of them because they ran out of water. And then another f- comical thing that's happened to me uh, twice during races, at least twice, is a train blocked the race as it came through. What was so dumb, and I don't know, it's kind of avoidable. You could find out the train schedule, I think. I think it really depends. Is there was a train immediately after the 100-mile start, and like I think some people got past it. And then the train started. So a whole bunch of people had to stop, which kind of ruins the race if you're really in it to win it or you know trying to be competitive. But hey, that's just that's kind of a thing that's like, well, it's almost out of your control. Uh, I would, if I ran that race, I would try to. I don't know if they can, because I've heard one time that uh, the train uh, companies, whatever the railroad company, won't tell you. They're like. Yeah, that's either private information or we're just not sure, not able to tell you. So it's really beyond their control or your control. But anyway, there was a train right after the 100-mile start, so that really sucks. Uh, My experience with that is you get to sit there and you get to meet a lot of people while you sit there and wait. It just sucks that it was like right at the beginning of the race. If it's the middle of the race or towards the end of the race, man, it's great because then you get to catch your breath and check on things. It's you know, But at the beginning of the race, it's kind of kind of terrible and then also it's like having that mud event at the beginning of the race and ruining your race right from the beginning be one thing if you got almost to the end and then your race uh room at least you got in a whole lot of riding okay then the thing that uh a couple other got a whole bunch of other things one was uh, somebody reported they had like every kind of weather they had sun wind rain even a little bit of hail at the end, which I, now I'm getting kind of like, oh, that's kind of fun, you know, to have everything. Now you're getting an experience. And then a, a tip for people having to carry their bike or riding a muddy course. Uh, I rode on the Unbound was on Saturday. And here in Texas, we had a whole bunch of rain. Uh, same storm system, actually. And then I went out riding the next morning and there was a surprise section of mud on my race course. And that's why I'm saying like, I'm not against there being mud on the course. 
it's type B fun, you know, you're like, oh, cool. Well, not really cool, but oh, this is interesting. And I had to carry my bike for, uh, I forgot how far, uh, a couple hundred yards through mud, maybe that. But I was not expecting it. They've done some construction on this gravel road and where they've put down the, the substrate or whatever. Now it's muddy. So that's created a problem. And I was like, oh, you know, carry my bike. Dude, carrying a bike is really freaking hard. And there's two tips I have on that is if you carry your bike and you're expecting that you might have to carry your bike a long ways, they make a strap. You can buy one online that you could like tuck away. It's just a strap and then you can carry your bike a whole lot easier on your back. People do this for the race where you have to go cross the Grand Canyon. And if you're crossing the Grand Canyon, it's illegal for you to have your bike even on the ground. Your bike tires are not supposed to touch the ground. So you carry your bike on your back. So anyway, they make like a, a strap system for that. And they make one that's actually really small, a top tube strap. It's kind of cool. And then... The other one is the second that you notice that it's peanut butter mud, stop riding your bike, get off your bike and carry it. And that's what I did on Sunday because I've made this mistake before. Well, I'm just going to keep pushing my bike. Don't push your bike through that stuff. It's going to gunk up and gunk up and gunk up and get worse and worse and worse. What you actually do is... The second that you notice that this is clogging mud, get off your bike and carry it. Just carry it. You'll be way better off. You'll get way less of the mud into your drivetrain. You, it'll be super easy to pick the mud out when you get through the muddy section, and then you can keep going. So that's what I did on Sunday. Um, I don't know if that's really an option at this thing because the three miles, imagine carrying your bike for three miles. I saw a video from a guy who had a strap. Uh, and did was able to carry his bike for three miles. And the other one is, and I need to do this, you get a paint stirrer stick and carry that with you. And if you have a gravel bike with a tube bag, a top tube bag like I've got, then that's why I'm saying I need to do this. I need to get a paint stirrer stick and just keep it in the top tube bag. It weighs nothing. It takes up like zero space. And with that, you're... That's what like the go-to is to get mud out of your frame because it's thin, it's strong, it'll get in between the cracks pretty easily and get all that mud out. All right, I'm going to go to Chipotle real quick and grab a burrito and I'll be right back and we can finish out the rest of this best and worst of the Unbound race. All right, we are back. That Chipotle was really good. I eat about half. I ask for a piece of tinfoil. Well, usually more than half. I also ask for a piece of aluminum foil whenever I check out and then I wrap the second, the last third of the burrito and bag it up and take it with me. And then I eat it as an afternoon snack right before my, I go home and before my evening workout. Anyway, on that note, two other things to mix in some triathlon in with this gravel bike podcast. (laughs) I tried something new running in Texas in the summer is so hot that you got to learn to carry some water with you. Even for an hour run, it makes a huge difference in this heat. And if you do ultra marathon running, you learn that you want running shorts with pockets. That way you can carry all kinds of fuel and stuff like that. So over the years, many, many years, I've collected running shorts with pockets and you want kind of deepish pockets, not shallow ones, deep ones. And 
I've figured out that I can run with a water flask like this. I have this 10 and a half ounce hard water flask that usually you snap to your running belt. This waist belt thing that you can wear from, I forgot the name of the brand. I'll remember in a minute. And then it's, uh, but it's like 10 and a half ounces and I do a little bit of fuel in it. I do a 100 calorie scoop of Gatorade. And then that way it's kind of a little bit over concentrated for the amount, that amount of water, but because it's plain Gatorade, it doesn't have too much sodium in it. So it doesn't hurt your stomach. Well, I tried something the other day and it really works. I have some Solomon, Solomon brand running flasks that go like in your running vest and they're the collapsible soft flask. It's kind of like the camelback material and they hold 16 ounces. I have two of these and I've been using them in the frame bag of my gravel bike to carry extra water, which really works. Fantastic. And I thought, what if I carried that in my, I carry my phone in one pocket and 10 and a half ounces of water to start or Gatorade in my right pocket. And then there are two water fountains along the way. And I'll just top off a little bit with the water fountain and river will drink from the water, the second water fountain for sure. I do. It is unbelievably hot. And again, as a triathlete, you work out so much, you're not fueling for this workout. You're fueling for a little bit, half of it's this workout and half of it's the next workout. So you want to stay on top of your hydration for sure. And dude, these things work great for running with carrying a little bit of water in your running shorts pocket. I was surprised. I can carry almost 16 ounces. So definitely 14, which is way more than the 10, 10 and a half that I was doing. And then also because they're soft sided and they collapse as you use them, they get smaller and smaller and smaller as you use them. So it's only kind of annoying right at first. And as you start drinking, they go down in size. And because they're soft, they conform to your body a little bit better as opposed to uh, any kind of hard thing that you're using whatsoever. And it's awesome. I'm loving it. I'm absolutely loving it. Okay, that's enough of our ultra running uh, segment that we just jammed in here. I was watching at lunch Dylan Johnson showing a video with another rider, their bike for Gravel Locos, their bikes uh, for Gravel Locos, and they also rode pretty much the same setup. Uh, but they're going to make another video for um, Unbound. And it's really, really interesting. I, I recommend you check it out because you can see how people nerd out on this stuff. Cyclists are all alike. If you want to go fast, there are modifications you make to everything on your bike. It's really cool. And I'll get to some of those that they talked about here in a second. On the good and bad of Unbound, one of the bad things was the live coverage for me totally sucked it was like what how do you watch this race which was so frustrating because they've had live coverage before right so we know they can do it and that coverage was i guess okay-ish i I thought it was fine i don't really remember and they kept saying oh the live coverage is on instagram well instagram live feeds is like these very short videos and a lot of them are are shot vertically which is terrible terrible for watching anything of that you really are into and there was no commentary nothing like that right and you know so people will say well it's out in the middle of nowhere maybe not enough people watched last year well dude you gotta you gotta like stick with something for a while it's like a race unbound was three 
uh, it was 30 people or 34 people the first year that they put it on, right? And then now it's like 4,000 something people. So you can definitely stick with something for a few more years. And then the other thing is, oh, they don't have a lot of money. It costs a lot of money. Okay, this was the Garmin Unbound. Garmin Unbound. And then also sponsored by Kraft. Now, I could see Kraft. And it's not Kraft Foods. It's Kraft Clothing with a C. (laughs) Kraft may not have the money to sink into this for live coverage. This is the biggest bike race in North America. It's the biggest bike race with the most amount of attention in North America and they don't have live coverage of this thing. Oh, it's out in Kansas, out in the middle of nowhere. Okay, well, Garmin, Garmin is the title sponsor. Think about this. Ironman does live coverage of their races now. They do it on like Facebook Live most often. And it's actually pretty good, right? They got commentators, all that stuff. It's not terrible. Ironman is a $750 million company. I did my research. I don't like, like I said, I don't complain unless <laughs> I got some solutions here. $750 million company at most, okay? Garmin, the title sponsor of this race, is a $20 billion company. So you're talking that Iron, it's, it's like 30 to 40 times bigger of a company than Iron Man. And they can't figure out how to throw the money at this thing to give it live coverage. Garmin is not just Garmin that you think about with bike computers and watches. Garmin is huge. They do avionics, the, which is the computers and guidance systems for planes, for, for jet aircraft. They do guidance systems for marine, like like nautical, like ocean-going kind of equipment. Dude, they are just absolutely massive. So Garmin, title sponsor, let's figure out a way to throw some more money at this thing so that you get some live coverage. It's embarrassing that this is the biggest race. And the reason it's a problem, it's not just because, you know, the audience wants to watch this thing, right? The pros, the pros spend all their time and money getting to this thing, their careers on the line, and they put forth this effort and then they get minimal coverage, minimal exposure, which leads to minimal branding, minimal return on their investment for coming and doing this. Dude, seriously, a company like Garmin could figure out how to put some blimps up in the air as self-created cell phone towers. Just saying. It's not completely out of the picture. So come on, let's step it up a little bit. You did it before, you can do it again. And do it not just for the audience, do it for the pros. Take care of your pros. Something else that we've learned from Iron Man. People that sign up for races watch how the pros get treated, you know? And if the pros don't get treated well, uh, well, I'll leave that out. Okay, so what's ended up happening is, the upside is, is that a lot of people, I think they would do this anyway, carry GoPros on their bikes. You have to wait a while. You have to wait days. And then all of a sudden, the video footage starts leaking out of everything that happened. And yeah, it's been a few days. That's why it takes a while to put out a show to review this thing. Because you got to wait for people to mix down. I know for making a podcast, people got to put together all the video clips and 
whatever they want to do, how heavy their production is, and put a show together with all this. And then you start seeing the inside stories. So an upside is, nowadays, is we are going to see a ton of GoPro footage from this race. It's so cool. But again, that's individuals doing that for themselves. Let's have like real coverage from the, from the people putting on the race itself. And also another thing that's cool about the GoPro coverage is that you get the personal stories and the narration. <laughs> it, is, it is fun. It is fun to watch. Okay, let's see. The live tracking for the XL, the 350 miler. I didn't hear any complaints. It looked pretty great to me. And I watched some of it until I lost, until the 200 mile started. And I kind of lost interest in the 300 because that was starting to wrap up anyway. I was watching specifically Ted King, who dropped out, by the way. So you got a pro, a former pro racer, a Tour de France racer, who was like, this mud is too much. And yeah, it was kind of cool. And I liked it that they differentiated in color. Uh, the males versus the females. So that was neat to see. It was easy to pick out your racers and follow them. You could favorite them. They got a good app for that. That was pretty nice. It's, uh, you know, it's just dots on a map. They call people that do that dot watchers, people that follow races uh, remotely. And so I was being a dot watcher and starting Friday afternoon. I think it started Friday at three o'clock. I'm in the same time zone as that. So it's, that was handy. (laughs) And then let's see. Oh, and another thing that the lack of decent live coverage, there was live coverage at times of very sparse and no, again, like hardly any commentary of actually what was happening, but there was some kind of live coverage maybe at the finish line and the video footage of the finish line was uh, of the sprint finish at the sprint line for the for the biggest of the the crown jewel of the race the 200 mile race with the former pros like uh, big and current pros uh lackland morton and uh keegan swenson i mean this is huge was you could barely see anything and the races all use one finish and this is beginning to become a problem because you end up with really slow people, which is fine. I've been really slow. I, I crossed the gravi- the line at Gravel Locos um, pretty slowly, okay? <laughs> so that's not a problem. But having slow people and lots of them crossing the narrow finish line chute because it's a downtown street, like a two-lane street, at the same time, the pros who are the fastest people out there and the most on the line. There's prize money, sponsorships, all that. Trying to fight their way through the, we'll just call them age groupers, like triathlon. Trying to fight their way through the age groupers because you've got these different races all finishing kind of at the same time. And it it's a problem because somebody's going to get hurt. And also it, it can affect the outcome of the race. If people are dodging around each other. And... Yeah, so you'll get the gravel purists that'll say, oh, this is the race. This is it. It's so cool to have everybody all on the race course at the same time. I'm not arguing against that. That's one of the coolest things about triathlon is you're all on the same race course at the same time. You get to mix and mingle with the pros at the start. (laughs) And then as the race goes on, the people in the front break away and then they cross the finish line nice and clear and they're not being clogged up by age groupers. I mean, we saw at this Ironman 
Hamburg problem incident where somebody got killed. That's when you got too many people on the course at the same time in the same spot and mixing age groupers in with pros and it can lead to serious problems. And what's the solution for that? Uh, there's a whole bunch of different solutions. None of them are like fantastic, but when somebody gets hurt or killed at the finish line or somebody just completely loses the race because they get stopped up by age groupers and they couldn't get around them, you'll see the very next year they'll change it. So why not change it now before it becomes a problem? Uh, you could have different finishing shoot areas for the different races. Like if we see this all the time, you know, at the end of an Ironman, you're doing loops on the run. You know, if, if you're doing another loop, keep going straight. If you're doing, if you're finishing, you know, go to the right, right. You can definitely split things and have people a uh, hundred milers to the left, 200 milers to the right, whatever. And, but keep them still kind of close. So it's, so it'll work. That was one solution that I've heard. Uh, there's a whole bunch of stuff like that. I am a fan of people finishing around the same time. I said that on my last podcast about Gravel Locos. Uh, they started everybody at the same time, and then people finished at all, all crazy times. And by the time I got to the finish line, because I was uh, mid-pack for the long race, everybody's like gone. There's no like festival left anymore. It kind of sucked. So I get it. You do want to have people finishing at the same time, but you got to like at the finish shoot, you got to like break things up a little bit so that one race isn't affecting the other or else somebody is eventually going to get hurt. I mean, these pro racers coming in hot, hot. They're putting everything on the line. And you see like in pro racing all the time, like Cavendish, like thrown into the barricades. And those guys are the best and they're all going the same speed. Imagine the difference in speed between certain uh, levels of people in different races. Okay, let's move on from that. I've already mentioned before, too much avoidable mud, too close to the start. They should have changed that. It's a gravel race, not a mud race. Just like when I say my response to somebody says, you should ride your bike on the sidewalk. I say, say that word, that last word again. They go, sidewalk. I go, now say the second half of that last word, walk. I go, yeah, that's a, it's for walking. You do not ride a bicycle at normal bicycle speeds on a sidewalk, right? Well, a gravel race is a gravel race. It's not a mud race. If you want to sign up for a mud race, you can do Spartan, mud this, mud that, all kinds of things. I, I've done mud uh, obstacle courses at uh, Marine Corps Military School and in the Corps at uh, Texas A&M, right? And those are fun, but that's what you're signing up for. It's a gravel race. So a little bit of grab, a little bit of mud is totally tolerable. That's understandable. That's kind of fun even, but there is a level past that where it's like, this is no longer a gravel race. That's not what we signed up for. So they ought to fix that. And another reason, and oh yeah, another reason how to fix it is it destroys your bikes. So you're talking about people with thousand to thousands of dollars of damage to their one and only pride and joy bike. And not everybody is rich in the joke in triathlon that everybody that is wealthy that buys these bikes that nobody else can afford. They're all dentists. Not everybody's a dentist. So they can't. That's a running joke, by the way. Don't take that personally if you're a dentist. It's tongue in cheek. So my father-in-law is a dentist and he's awesome. And then not everybody has the resources to change their tires at the last minute. You got to buy a new set of tires. That's $150. And then you got to get the got to get the bike mechanic to get the tires on. You got to find somebody. Somebody suggested that oh, you should get a different drivetrain, dude. What do you need? Like two different bikes? 
for the same sport, for the exact same sport? Come on, give me a break. You got to do some better planning around this mud. And let's see. The upside is, though, this is a show for triathletes. As a triathlete, you better be running some or run walking or speed hiking, doing something besides just biking with your legs. As a triathlete, you should be able to handle hiking through mud quite a distance. So stick with this podcast, stick, stick with your training program. And then if you do get into Unbound or I've heard another one, Mid-South, they call it Mud South. <laughs> then at least when you do get stuck with this adversarial situation, then you can easily hike through it anyway. It's not that you'll end up being all right. So like I just mentioned, you can overcome mud with a better tire choice. A lot of people uh, don't know this, although it is becoming more known, that you actually size down your tires, not up, if you're going to get into really sticky mud. Uh, Cyclocross has mud in it all the time, and those tires are really narrow for off-road so that they will cut through the mud and dig in deeper and actually give them traction. And they ride it like that all the time. And then also, as the mud sticks to the tires, it jams into the frame. So you actually want some clearance. My front tire is actually a little bit too big. And I love it. But for my frame, I'm going to size down. It's a 50 on the front. I'm probably going to size down to a... I'd like to size down to a 48. But it's hard finding 48s in a 700. So I found a Pathfinder Pro as what Dylan says he runs. And that's in a 47. So I think I might do that for example. Uh, Another thing that you do is you can actually, it doesn't take that long and it's kind of fun, is you can with a fingernail trimmer and a knife and actually make a tool to do this too. A ceramic uh, knife, like a little kitchen knife or something, something that's really sharp, but uh, fingernail clippers work really well, is you can trim back the knobs on on the side, the, the shoulder knobs on your tire so they clear the frame a little bit better. A lot of times you don't need those knobs, especially on the rear, and that's where it's the tightest. You need them on the front for steering so your front doesn't slide out from underneath you. But the back, not so much. And I've done that before. That was kind of fun. My wife was like, what in the world are you doing? <laughs> I was trimming millimeters off the off the uh, the tires of this other gravel bike that I used to have. And it worked. It worked really great. It gave me all of a sudden the clearance that I needed. Okay, we already talked about the paint, the paint, the paint stirrer stick, and also a lot of people carry spare water. This is more like if you're just out doing a gravel training ride, uh, carry a spare water bottle to spray things down. So I carry spare water because my rear radar, the Garmin, will get covered in mud, and it kind of freaks me out a little bit that it might not work. It seems to still work, which is bizarre, but I uh, rinse that off. You could spray down your rear cassette and your chain rings and your chain a little bit, get the mud off. Uh, And actually, you ought to do this if you're riding in um, not even mud, but a lot of dirt and uh, a lot of miles. And if it's been raining and I get a lot of grime in my drivetrain, I did this on Sunday. Uh, My drivetrain was fine, but it was a little dirty and mucky. So I used some water to spray it down and get that off and... Yeah, it works great. Kai's uh, other coach uh, actually recommended that to him for long bike rides is carry a spare water bottle specifically for rinsing off your drivetrain. You're halfway through your ride. You're not going to ride off-road anymore. Now you're back on pavement. So rinse off your drivetrain while you're stopping for a water break. 
Okay. Another thing that people forget is you can actually carry spare chain lube on your bike in your jersey pocket, your camelback, your frame bag, top tube bag, whatever you got. And my favorite for that is Muck Off comes in a bigger bottle, which is 200 milliliters, 150 milliliters, something like that. But they also make a 50 milliliter bottle. And so the eyedropper size bottles of stuff, I think it's too small. That'll give you one application. And so you, you use it once where you got to refill it. And it might give you two applications. But the best size for me is the 50 millimeter milliliter muck off because with that, I can actually use it four or five times. And it's kind of, kind of a flat bottle. Uh, it's pretty nice. I guess you could use, I've seen a uh, white lightning comes in kind of a flat bottle sometimes, but anyway, I would do like a flatter bottle and around 50 milliliters. And again, muck off has a really long uh, nose on it. So you can really get to the links and put it on and you should reapply chain lube, even though, you know, you're supposed to apply and then let it dry overnight and all that with, with the wax, dude, just riding along it's going to dry out because it's getting all that air exposure and it works itself in. It is better than nothing. And it does really help. It helps a lot. So you can do that. Uh, downside, a good and the bad. One of the bads is that there's an actual lottery to get in. I understand. I haven't tried to get in, so I don't know for sure, but I hear there's a lot, a lottery. A uh, good thing is, dude, it's a muddy race that could be actually terrible the year that you do it. So go sign up for another race. Like apparently there are tons and tons of races and this applies to Ironmans all kinds of stuff the 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 races that you want to get into a lot of times it's just because of popularity has gotten out of control and they're not that great the the super popular races especially because they've gotten super popular there's like a right size for a race and for you and for what you want. So for some people, the madness of like having too many people, they like that. But races that are um, appropriately sized, there's still tons of them out there. So that's an upside is you can go find any of these. And gravel races are actually really inexpensive compared to like Ironman. People think that they're ex expensive because they're like, this is $150, this is $200. It's like, dude, compared to an Ironman, that's nothing. <laughs> so come on. And also, dude, you can just make a Strava segment loop. Seriously, you can make a Strava segment loop as long as you want. I don't know what the longest is. Somebody could Google that and let us know. But I think there's ones that are over 100 miles long easily. I think there might be 150, 200 miles long, probably. And like my personal the longest loop that I've got is 20 something miles long. It's the, all the trails at the local mountain bike park in an order that I like. And then what happens is, is every time you ride it, it'll compare that time versus your previous time. And all the other little segments inside that other people make or that you make all work too. So you can constantly race yourself on a loop, make a loop uh, or a route that's really, really long and then on occasion, race it yourself, and then start inviting friends. And that's how the, um, the one that Heather Jackson did in Tennessee with, who did she do that with? It wasn't Keegan, was it? Anyway, 
that's just a, a known like route that everybody likes to ride and you can ride it anytime you want. And then you try to get the calm on it. The, oh, what's it? The, the FKT fastest known time, right? Well, you can start doing your own FKT course by creating a Strava segment and Strava will keep track of it. And it's great. I've done it. It's fantastic. So make your own gravel course and do like I do with the, the self-supported Ironmans. And when you're about to go do it, tell people you're about to go do it and get donations and send them over to charity. And now you're actually, uh, instead of paying for a race, you're raising money for some foundation that you like. Okay. Now some more cool stuff. The variety of bikes and the different mods is crazy at this race. And I saw what I thought was the craziest was Lachlan Morton. And if you don't know about this guy, you got to Google him. He was a road racer and really didn't like being a road racer and the team dynamics and stuff. And if you just watch any video of this guy, he's the most chill, laid back, coolest guy ever. So cool. And he's got that dark hair and the eyes that look like... Chris Cornell from Soundgarden or Rob Machado, the surfer that I used to follow when I was in the surfing big time. And there's just something about him that's got, he's got the Kavorka, you know, from Seinfeld. There's just something about him, this magnetic animal magnetism. And that's just so cool. You just want to like hang out and be around this guy for no reason. Uh, Rich Roll was the same way. There's just something about him that you just want to just be near him. <laughs> like, you have like a bro crush on him, but you're just like, dude, I'm just, I'm just hanging out, dude, I'm hanging out with Rob or uh, Lachlan Morton or Rich Roll. Uh, what are y'all doing? Nothing. We're just sitting here. I could see my wife getting a phone call like that. And then, oh yeah. So his bike set up, this guy, yeah, he was a road racer and then he started getting out of road racing, but he's got so much talent. He's a top road racer and he races for EF education first the pink team and they started sponsoring him just to go ride crazy stuff and he did he did leadville and all stuff and he's so good that you know he kind of wins i don't know maybe 50 percent of the time but it's his adventure riding and stuff he's done the craziest longest stuff colorado trail all that stuff so this guy really knows what he's doing especially when it's a mix of road and off-road so gravel is like right up his alley his bike setup was like my dream come true in that he's riding a Cannondale and dude Cannondale claims that it'll hold like a 45 or maybe a yeah I think a 45 I think that's it that's what they claim it'll hold dude he put this is what I talk about on gravel bikes don't believe the manufacturer what they say because what they're saying applies to the rear triangle it does not apply to the front he had a 53, a 53 millimeter tire in the front. And so, and he said that was for uh, floating over the, the, the rough terrain. He put that on before it got so muddy, by the way. And so floating over the terrain and it's cushy. So it gives you suspension in the front. And on gravel bikes, gravel bikes typically come without suspension if you are going to put suspension on a gravel bike, it's the front. That's absolutely where you put it. So if you run a fatter front tire, which a lot of people can and don't know this because they haven't tried and they think that it's weird to mismatch tires. No, I'm telling you, that's what the pros do. They mismatch tires. You put a different tire on the front than the back. The front does different things than the back does. Even there's one bike tire that they make 
where if you run both of them and it's the same, and it's like a big name tire. I can't remember what it is off the top of my head. It's one that everybody's heard of. That says if you put it on the front, you run it this direction. If you run it on the back, you flip it around. You reverse the tread on the on the tire, right? So this is just what you do at advanced level racing and riding. 53 in the front, I think a 44 in the back. Yeah, because I think that uh, the most the bike will hold is a 45. So he put a 44 in the back. And the front, he put an arrow wheel. So a deep dish arrow wheel. <laughs> and it was like a 50 millimeter deep dish or maybe a 60. Nothing like crazy, you know, not the craziest. But still, it was wild. And I think one was a tan wall and one was a black wall. I don't remember now. I don't have the picture in front of me, right? But that's just like, there was so much commentary on that. Like, holy crap, what is this guy doing? Well, aerodynamics matter the most on the front of the bike, okay? So if there is a place where you're going to put an aero wheel, it's the front. Doesn't make sense because you always see the disc wheel on the back, but the aero wheel on the front is the most important thing. Also, your helmet is one of the other things that is uh, the most aero, the most bang for your buck aero because the shape is in the front, right? And that's where the wind is hitting. And then he did a regular, he did a mountain bike rim in the back to hold the rear tire. And then uh, that's a lighter rim. And then uh, that's to save weight. Being an arrow doesn't matter so much across the back. So there's lots of examples of this. It's one of the best things about gravel and triathlon because triathlon doesn't have UCI rules either is you can do whatever you want. It's so crazy. So another thing that was super cool that was on the list of like, what is going on here is I noticed, I haven't seen anybody else point this out, but watching the, the footage and the, 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 looking at the pictures of the finish line, all three, I think of the top finishing male pros for the 200 were wearing headphones and they're wearing the ones that I recommend to get is they're the bone conduction headphones made by shocks s-h-o-k-z that way they're not in your ear they're on your temple on your temples and then what they do is they transmit better through your through your head and then your ears are still open to hear what's going on around you and i highly recommend getting those for running biking outside you can wear them at work and you can you don't have to take things out of your ears for people to um to talk to you and it and if things do get bad and you still can't hear somebody, you just tap the side, the left side of them to pause, whatever you're listening to. And I actually recommend headphones for long distance stuff because I've done a bunch of races, marathon mountain biking races, for example, where I'm wearing them at the, at the back and also trail running, you know, it's really nice. Uh, when people call you, your loved ones call you to ask where the hell you are, what are you doing? You don't have to stop to answer the phone and then, or try to ride your bike or some or run. That's how I broke my elbow on the phone. Uh, you can actually keep moving while, um, while you're talking and communicating. So I was doing a marathon mountain bike race in December, January of this past year. And my shocks headphones that I was wearing died. They broke. After two years of use or a year of use, they finally shorted out from sweat exposure. And they'd been through a lot. <laughs> and they shorted out. 
And then I was like, well, well I'm going to have to do the rest about halfway through. I'm going to have to do the rest of the race without any kind of music or anything. And, and, uh, typically I listen to a mix of music and podcast and it sucked. Emily called me and I had to pull over and talk to her or else I was going to crash. And she's like, what are you doing? How are you doing? And I'm like, I gotta, I gotta go. I gotta get back on the bike. Everything's fine. You know, like that, where if I was actually like the headphones were working, I could be like, oh, I'm on mile, whatever. Everything's cool. You know, every, you know, I'm doing great. I'm having a good time. And, but instead like turned it into a dangerous situation. So for the average age grouper, or you're on purpose riding in the non super non-competitive pointy end of the race, you can just jam out uh, towards the back. Dude, I've worn them in plenty of mountain bike races. And again, if you're riding Cat 2, Cat 3 towards the back, especially the longer the race, and you just kind of let the race go, and then you pace yourself towards the back, nobody cares. Like it's, And they are definitely safe. Okay, now let's see. I saw that. The thing that I completely disagree with that they've banned actually is arrow bars. But they tried to ban them for the entire race possibly that came up and people threw a fit absolutely threw a fit just like unbound gravel which used to be dirty kanza which is like one of the oldest gravel races out there the oldest form of biking long distances across the countryside has been going on forever i'm talking like people that bike across mongolia people that bike around the world People that want to buy across Europe, they use aero bars. And they don't really call them aero bars because they actually serve two purposes. They call them comfort bars. One, it gives you a position to give your hands a break because now you're resting on your elbows instead of your hands. And I'm telling you, it's really, really, really nice because gravel is rough. And so it's not, it's not like riding a road bike on pavement. It is way worse on your hands so to actually have the aero bars which then you use as comfort bars is fantastic and so they talked about banning them and then people were like "Uh uh-uh what the hell are you talking about dude i do not want to do this race without aero bars gravel bars whatever the reason they're talking about banning them though is some pros and i'm gonna i'm gonna narrow it down even further pro roadies that come from and maybe mountain bikers that come from a background their entire lives where they never used aero bars are afraid of aero bars and they don't have the skill set to use them because the whole, the whole argument against you know don't we don't want the aero bars are unsafe you know all this stuff people are like no they're not they're not unsafe whatsoever you don't use them when you're going downhill you don't use them when you're in a pack. Everybody knows this stuff. People have been riding aero bars on gravel forever. I've never seen a crash on gravel in aero bars. You know what I have seen? I've seen a lot of crashes on gravel on drop bars, regular bars. I've seen a lot of crashes with people in clipped in or wearing a helmet. So what, should we ban those two? No, they're not related, man. The aero bars are absolutely fine. And the longer the race is, the more likely you are going to be solo by yourself into a headwind. And it sucks to be riding upright on the hoods or on a flat bar um, because you were told that you couldn't ride aero bars. It's definitely a skill 
triathletes are considered the worst cyclists in the world and they can figure out how to ride aero bars all the time. It's genuinely from roadies that don't want to look like triathletes or mountain bikers, maybe. Mountain bikers are always cool though. They do whatever. But roadies that don't want to look like triathletes, so they've developed this hate for aero bars and they think that it's somehow cheating. Well, let me tell you again, the real spirit of gravel, quote unquote, that people use is aero bars are actually old school. They're older than, than what you think. And they've been part of the sport forever. So anyway, because some roadies refuse when they do this uh, gravel racing thing, they refuse to use aero bars because they're scared to learn how to use them. It blows my mind. Then they accuse the racers that actually know how to use aero bars of that it's cheating because it's so much faster and it's so much more comfortable. Well, you can just take that and remember that, that when, when you're getting into a race that's really long or a gravel ride that's really, really long, there's something out there that is so good and so easy to use. And as a triathlete, you probably know how to use them. It's aero bars. So they banned them for the pros only, only in the 200-mile race. And the excuse for this is, well, if you're a pro, you're fast enough, you're good enough, you should be able to do the race anyway without aero bars. And that's, that is true. You should be able to, to um, cut it and make it through. But as far as age groupers go, which most of us on here listening to this are, aero bars are still fun. But also, the lack of aero bars in the pro ranks leads to the exact same thing that they complain about, which is roadie tactics. So at the end of Gravel Locos, there was a lot of trash talk about how people were sitting in and drafting off of each other and then not uh, putting forth enough effort towards the end. Well, you're without aero bars, you're forcing people to really have to work a whole lot harder. And guess what they do? They ride in packs a whole lot more. And guess what they do? They shelter off of each other. And then it leads into arguments at the end of people drafting off of each other. Put the aero bars back in. And then people won't be as afraid to take a turn at the front. Because, again, another place the arrow bars are fine is at the front. So take a turn at the front to, be, to fall off the back for a little bit and then catch back up because you got arrow bars. It's not that much of a punishment if you fall off. Or basically, you don't have to ride in this tight pack, this meatball, the entire time. Which is what the pros are complaining about at the end of a race when they accuse somebody of, of not putting in enough work. Okay, enough of that. So uh, I was a little worried about in the pro women's race, there's always this controversy that the woman that won or several women that did really well were drafting off of some of the men, and it's unfair. And that is true. Uh, that is unfair, and it's a sucky situation. I'm not really sure what they do about that. Well, they did do something. They started the pro men uh, five minutes ahead of the pro women. So that broke them up. But then after the pro women, the next, I forgot how many minutes behind they started off everybody else. Well, a lot of age grouper men are as fast as the pro women. And so when they catch up, they'll, the, they'll strike deals with each other and the women will start drafting off of the men and the women that don't do that get pissed because they're like, this is the women's race. 
you know, maybe draft off of other women, but don't draft off of the men. The men influence the women's race. So there was a little bit of interesting conversation by the second place winner uh, that they should have a separate women's race that starts on Friday as well. And it's kind of interesting. Um, but she, it was just a uh, kind of offhanded comment. It wasn't like, like that serious. The, the thing that was interesting was another thing that she said was the race is too long for women. The 200 mile race is too long for women that in other cycling events, they do shorter distance races. And I find that, uh, I'm not a woman, so I don't really have a leg to stand on here, but I find that kind of like insulting, kind of like, dude, there's shorter races. Do the, do the, uh, hundred mile race. I don't know. Right. If you feel like the 200 is, is too long, do the 100 mile race. And then also in the name of equality, yes, I totally understand that, you know, the men are faster and that they do um, the race in a, in a shorter amount of time. And I get that. That's not what I'm saying. Uh, but in the name of equality with men and women and the women can finish the race. Uh, and a lot of the pro women are finishing the 200 mile race way before the average males, right? Uh, I get passed by pro women all the time. Even when I was really fast at Ironman, I still get passed by pro women. And the, the race is not, is not too long for women to do. And Ironman actually set the standard for that as one of the sports. They were one of the first sports that said men and women do the exact same distance. There is no difference. We're not going to make a shorter distance for women. There's going to be a quality here. Everybody has to do the exact same distance. That, that's actually kind of cool. Where our man needs to do some work is getting the number of female pros into the uh, world championship. <coughs> All right, moving on from that. <clears throat> All right, anyway, moving on from that, there was two female pros that was super interesting to us because they are Ironman pro triathletes as well. Although... Heather Jackson has just retired officially, she says, from pro Ironman and has focused on gravel. <clears throat> and she won the Belgian waffle ride in California. And she claimed that is the biggest win of her life, even though she's won a whole bunch of Ironmans, <laughs> which is nuts. That's how big these, this gravel thing is going on right now. And Heather Jackson is also a trail, a trail runner now and won some tr- long distance ultra marathon trail run race too. So Heather was definitely a favorite. I was listening to a podcast where they were reviewing the, the, pro, the pros that were the favorites to win and stuff. And they mentioned Heather Jackson and they're like, is she a dark horse? And they were like, no, dude, she's legit. She could win this thing. She won Bel- Belgian waffle ride. She's a pro, a retired former pro triathlete, Ironman triathlete. This is like right up her alley. So there was Heather Jackson and then I noticed friend of the show, Angela Nath was going to do the race. And Angela Nath is also a pro Ironman triathlete and a powerhouse on the bike. I think that might be, I'm pretty sure that's her, her strength out of the three. And I was just like over the moon. I'm like, oh my gosh, I love it to see Ironman triathletes doing this and see how they, how they do. And also shock everybody, dude, if they allowed aero bars... <laughs> Oh my God. 
But anyway, because of the mud and the situation, and this is what I don't like about the mud thing again, is it throws an unnecessary kink in things. Heather Jackson had a bad mechanical. I think she it turned her bike into a single speed for a portion of the race. Like she couldn't shift, couldn't do anything. And uh, they're both Shimano sponsored, I think. So there was a Shimano um, aid station where they kind of they cleaned up their drivetrains and they kept going. But Angela Nath got 12th and Heather Jackson got 18th. So that's like, that's pretty amazing. So congratulations to them. That was really cool to see. I can't wait to see the videos that they put out of their adventures. They are both great narrators and uh, really inspirational for the sport. Heather has like this huge grin on her face the entire time that she's racing. Like she's laughing the entire time. I don't know how she's doing that because, and always like, I think she's right. <laughs> she's like, it reminds me of me when I do well. I'm like a just shock of myself, you know. I'm like, what is going on? I can't believe how good I'm doing. Well, she's like that all the time. And then uh, Nath is kind of the same way and also runs um, a support group for <laughs> support. Sounds like sounds like a, an addiction problem or something like that. But no, like a, a support group for female cyclists and a ride like a girl maybe I think is what it's called. Uh, to get w- more women out on biking. There's something like that in mountain biking too called grit, girls riding something in it together. And uh, so they're both like really inspirational in the sport. So I love to see that. That's really great. So their stories are going to be awesome. All right, that's the best and worst of Unbound. And we'll take a little break here and then come back and finish the show. All right, I'm back. I'm actually on my way home from work and saw a couple more things that I just knew would pop up with all the media coverage from Unbound. GCN did a a bit on whether people are just complaining too much, you know, that races should be hard. And as the crown jewel race, the marquee race, of course, it, it should be insanely difficult, right? And people are just whining. And I'm like, yeah, that's, that's true for sure. But again, the Unbound 200 had a 47% DNF rate, 47%. And GCN was saying, well, it's the, it's the hardest gravel race. That's what it's supposed to be. Well, I looked up Norseman, for example, because they mentioned it actually is the hardest triathlon that's got like a 12% DNF rate 12% and then I was like okay what is considered like the hardest race in the world by a lot of people the Tour de France it's got a 23% DNF rate (laughs) so this is double that and I don't think people are signing up for something as hard as the Tour de France so in my book the race was kind of a fail I've I've found in myself that I always say things in percentages because it's never completely black and white. So it's a, I would say the race is like a 50% fail. Maybe, oh, it looks 47% fail. How about that? You know, it's easy to say that people are just complaining and that it's supposed to be the hardest race. But when it's a nearly half DNF rate and when you start 
bringing into the equation all the damage done to people's bikes. That's uncool. That's it's just uncool when they could have rerouted the course and made it go somewhere else. You know, you're totally not taking into consideration about how much people put into their um, how much time and money people put into this. And if people are wealthy, sure. You know, they don't really care, sure. But a lot of us aren't in that situation. All right, we're back to wrap up the show. A few things have happened since I just left you at lunch. (laughs) I'm on my way home to actually go for a bike ride. I can't wait. It's summer, so the sun's up later. It's going to be nice. Going to get in an hour on the bike. So the stories keep pouring in about Garmin Unbound. Garmin was the title sponsor. Jeb... Jeff, sorry, I keep thinking Jebka. Jeff Kabush, who actually I raced against at the Cactus Cup time trial. He was the guy that went right before me and just destroyed me uh, two years ago. Not this year, but last year. And Cactus Cup is a three-day mountain bike race. Oh, it's so cool. Time trial first day, marathon mountain bike course, so 40-something miles. Day two and day three is a enduro race. Kai and I have done it the past two years. I wish I was making podcast episodes about it because it was nuts. So Jeff Kabush, uh, who is an Olympian, by the way, as they announced him as he went right before me in the time trial. <laughs> God, it was. I was like, I'm so in the wrong race. He uh, said on Twitter, you know, a billion-dollar company sponsoring a race you think they would have done something like this and then he showed a picture of Garmin's solution to huge data uploads to the internet uh, in remote places it's a picture of a jeep with a big satellite dish on top that's yeah massive upload speeds so that you could get your coverage out there your video feed out there for the race and so I saw that tweet and I replied back uh $20 billion company, not just a billion dollar company. And yeah. Okay. So there's that. And then another interesting thing was I forgot to mention Lachlan Morton did a, he's so chill and so cool and everything. And he said, the only thing, you know, gravel's just going through growing pains with all the rules is what he was talking about. Uh, Pros using arrow bars or not, you know, things like that. And he said the one thing that will ruin triathlon is if – ruin triathlon, ruin gravel – is if you start getting teams in with team tactics. And at first, Reed, I totally agreed with him, right? And I get what he's talking about, you know, because teams uh, will band together and then not everybody has a team, right? So it's not really fair. And so to keep things even – you don't want everybody, you know, to have teams. Uh, it's either teams or not teams. Just the Tour de France, it's all teams, right? You don't have independent racers. <laughs> if you go independent in Tour de France, you're doomed, right? Well, not everybody can afford to be on a team. So that he's saying that would ruin gravel. And then I saw a story today that kind of threw a wrench in that. And... The seventh place finisher, I don't want to name names, also because I forgot his name, but uh, the seventh place finisher, finisher, there was a short article saying that he 
publicly thanked a team member, so I guess they're on the same team, that gave him a wheel when his wheel, I guess, went flat or something like that. And I'm like, crap, what what the hell is this, dude? This is team tactics. You know, somebody giving each other, you know, giving somebody a wheel uh, that's on a team. And then I thought about it more and I said, well, you know, when Kai and I race, my goal is to ride behind him. And it's a different goal, though. It's, if Kai has trouble, I'm there to salvage his race so that he can finish. He's out of contention to win, right? I'm just there, you know, so that he's my kid, man. I want him to have a good time. I, I want the sport of cycling, you know, to be a lifetime sport. And I want him to have fun. And so if, would I give him my entire bike? Would I give him my wheel and then give up the race? I don't know. Maybe it kind of depends on the race and how much left there is to go. Kind of how I felt about it. If I was trying to really race myself. But I would definitely give support, right? I would give support. And then I thought about the times with Ironman triathlon where uh, there's like Chrissy Wellington, all these stories of you can get support from other racers, right? Like say you have a flat tire and somebody hands you a CO2. You can't get outside support from a support crew, but you can get support from the other racers. If somebody goes by and throws you a CO2 cartridge... I think that's considered fine. A spare tube, right? And there's lots of that. So then now you're getting into this gray area, right? Where is it? Oh, and then Chrissy Wellington went on to win? So uh, I don't know, right? It starts getting weird. I think the story from Unbound where a fellow teammate sacrificed a wheel so that the other person could get seventh which is really high up there. I think you're kind of falling on the... I could be wrong. There's always more to a story. But I think you're kind of falling on the wrong side of, of, of not what we're looking for. But gravel could evolve, you know. What, okay, there's another thing. Is that before Ironman brand came along, long-distance triathlons were put on by all different companies and there's all different kinds of standards and it was the Wild West... And that was just the way things were. Some races were like this. Some races are like that. Dude, I've done triathlons where they're backwards, you know? And it's cool. And then what standardization does, Ironman really standardized the distance, the field, the, the type of course, that they standardized the whole event. And the thing that they teach in Zen is if you make everything the same, then you can actually see what stands out. So standardizing triathlon by the Ironman brand made Ironman made triathlon take off as a huge sport because now you could really compare people race to race to race because before it's like well they did well at this one race but that one race was so different than this other race and that race is so different from this other race so you can't really compare people it's like if you had basketball games where the rules are different and the, the court's a different size or something. <laughs> and like all over, you can't really tell who the best players are because they uh, it's so random, right? Well, gravel's like that right now. Gravel is, is 
non-standard all over the place and you're going to see crazy stuff happen and different rules as long as there's different rules at different races you're going to have a lot of controversy and a lot of upset but i don't know like the different races the different types of events is actually really cool so we'll see and then one last thing before we go is i was talking earlier about kai and i racing each other in the different comms king of the mountain segments on strava uh, when i did take that one back <laughs> from kai the three minute one uh yeah i beat his time by like 20 seconds and then uh i didn't make the ride public so he didn't get the notification until he was at work and couldn't do anything about it. I was actually worried that if I took the comm back and then told him too early, he would go back out and take it in the same day. That's how uh, I was trying to protect this thing for a little bit. And I uh, I fully expect he's going to take it back anytime. It won't be hard for him to do that. But uh, yeah, so the, the comm tactic was ride easy, then go really hard to take the comm, and then... Don't talk about it until it's too late for him to uh, to do anything about it all day. <laughs> and and it worked. I remember I got back. Uh, Kai is very chill. And growing up with me, because I, I mess with him a bunch, because, you know, he and I have a really fun relationship. And uh, he's he's developed this attitude of being unflappable. You could really, like, try to tease him about something uh, or try to get his, as we say, uh, where I live, uh, get his goat, you know, like aggravate him by saying something, uh, pick at him. And he does nothing. He, he's like, he's so chill and so level. So I told him as he was on his way out the door, I said, Oh, Kai, by the way, I took that calm. And he turned and looked at me and he stared and he goes, huh? Well, I really wasn't even trying anyway. And I go, oh, yeah, you're not going to go out try to get it back and he goes nah well i'll get it whenever like that i was like dang dude that's so chill and so uh i i actually do that too as um uh emily and i have actually talked about it a bunch there's there's a collect there's a correct amount of of challenge and back and forth agitation between uh the two of us that motivates Kai to uh to keep going and I make sure that um if something's going to be demoralizing you know I don't say anything uh and and for example like I consider like would I help Kai in a race if I come up behind him and he's got a flat tire I consider like is this race something that is um, and and y'all should do this too when you pick out races and training and stuff you pick out things that are inspirational and make you want to keep going. It's not just like it's not about today's workout. It's also not just this race. You want to race today so that you want to keep racing tomorrow. And if a race, Kai not finishing a race would be actually better for Kai's or anybody's uh, uh, career, uh, lifetime sport, then uh, then DNFing, wait, qu- quitting, well, I could have mixed up. But anyway, it doesn't matter. If quitting is actually better for them, 
because let's say they got another race coming up. I say, you know what? You should just quit anyway because um, it's not it's not going to help you now at this point to keep going. You rest, save your energy. Teach them like teach them that that one mindset. You know, your your bike's blown up, dude, and and um, don't worry about it. This race, you know, wasn't like you always have like a plan B and a plan C for races, and uh, so Kai and I. Um, yeah, we have this relationship where I, I taunt him and I tease him and stuff and, and keep him going. And I tease him just enough to make him want to keep going. And uh, and then also, but I leave it alone if it's something where I can tell, like, it's going to bug him too much. You know, like, I don't, you know, like I would say he only beat me because I'm twice his age, you know. So, of course he beat me. <laughs> because I know his comeback and he's like, well, you've been doing this forever. You should still be really good. And you're not that old. And then I'm like, yeah, okay. So like, like, like that's the perfect amount, but also because I know him like really well. All right. On that note. So taking the comms back and forth from each other, doing it just enough and picking the right ones. is actually a strategy I do to keep Kai hungry and uh, thinking that he can always do a little bit, a little bit better. Cause if his old man, can take a calm back well then kai should definitely be able to take the calm again back the other way and he'll get around to it all right on that note as far as coaching goes i have a couple more coaching spots open we use training peaks the industry standard the one the olympians use i've been coaching uh, with training peaks for 10 12 something years and we use power meters heart rate we do it all we do all the different sports Ironman triathlon, Ultraman, trail running, long distance swimming, all three sports. And it's totally customized coaching. It's 200 bucks a month. Actually, it's 199. And I work with you to get you started, to get you going, to keep you going and get towards that big goal. And we look at your overall training stress score and we do a build. And also I'm familiar with polarized training Maffetone method, map, all the different training styles. It's kind of like Bruce Lee. <laughs> if what you do is you learn all the training styles and then you can apply them as needed per person in every battle. And yeah, using those tools, build you a totally customized training plan, check in with you on the regular, get feedback and modify your plan to keep you progressing towards your goal so you can get me as your personal coach by reaching out to texafornia at gmail.com again it's t-e-x-a texafornia like california texafornia at gmail.com and we can get you started let me know all right everybody stay safe out there work the uphills cruise the downhills and keep the rubber side down out